You're listening to Fun Shack. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm speaking with Michael Lindauer, co-CIO of private equity at Allianz Capital Partners. Michael joined Allianz in 2003, and for nearly two decades, he's been at the forefront of backing private equity managers first across Europe, and now with a global brief. I hope you enjoy it. Michael, welcome to Fun Shack. Thanks so much for coming along. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I wonder if, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the market, you could give us uh, the two-minute um, Michael Lindauer uh, career history and how you got to this point in uh, private markets. Private oh, my, oh my goodness, that sounds where I'm very old. No, no, I, I, basically I started my career at, uh, at PwC as an accountant and then I had a little stint in the new economy at Yahoo. Um, and then I actually I answered to an advert by Allianz who was searching for somebody in the private equity team and they, they took me and here, here we are 20 years later. Then I took over the European team in 2007 and then the, the global team in 2010. So you've really seen the industry go from almost a cottage industry, I guess, to what it is today. It was much more a niche, obviously, in the beginning, yes. And at the end, if I always recall, if, if when I did my studies um, beforehand, it was private equity was not really heard of or it was something that would be done, whatever, on a Friday afternoon in the course and then it was forgotten over the weekend again. So, yes. And Allianz Capital Partners has, has grown along with the market to some degree, has it? Has grown along with the market. It's a good thing. Allianz being a very long-term investor, which helps in an industry which per definition is is long-term. So yes, so that's basically when I started um, in our, the private equity team was around whatever, five, six people. Now we're 22 people in the investment team and then there's another 30 people in the mid, mid back office. So yes, quite a, quite a lot of growth. And how about your mandate and your and your outlook, the things that you look at? How's that changed and where, where is it today? We started out, obviously, we're still investing on behalf of mostly um, the Allianz policyholders, so the life insurance business, recently opened up also to external clients, but that's still the bulk of the money. And frankly, back then when I started, we did investments were around whatever, three, four hundred million a year. In a good year, now we're at three billion, which shows you. I mean, which is not only for us, but shows you how the the industry obviously grew over time here. You spend most of your time looking at European propositions, I assume. That, my my role is global, but by definition, obviously, I'm a little bit closer yeah. to what's happening in Europe. How how much time do you spend on the global piece, and how much time do you spend on on the European part, and how much is management, and how much is actually looking at at GPs and that kind of thing? Frankly, I would like it to be more time looking at GPs, to be honest. But it's kind of, we have very good teams in New York where our US business is sitting and in Singapore for Asia. And, and this is led locally. So I don't need to do something, but it's kind of obviously we try to also have um, work as one global team and also feel as one global team. So I'm going back and forth. Not so much over the last two years, obviously, but I try to be there at least once, twice a year. Um, so that that that's it, but so, mostly in mostly in Europe. So how's the last two years been? Given that it's been a fairly remote, I need business. I need new glasses because of all the video conferences. Yeah. I think so. That's that's basically how we how we did it, and we obviously we increased frequency of our team meetings. You know, which we would normally do very classically on a Monday, but now we did it Monday Thursday. So to just to make sure that everybody's also on board, and then we still we don't lose ourselves as a team. But we're in London now, so you're back out and about. That's that's kind of the we said it in the beginning. So this is the first time in London for two years or so. Looks very similar that it used to be. Uh, the Scottish nature of the spring, I like that. 
It's around yeah, five uh, degrees freezing. or so. <laughs> yeah, but I'm anyway, sorry about that. it's not spring like at all. And before we go, get onto the the, the market, as it were. Um, what about kind of upstream? So you're, I think you're you're part of Allianz Global Investors, is, is yes. that right? And what's how do they view private markets? Is there do they have a fixed allocation? Is that how it works? No, it's a uh, Allianz Global Investors is is the asset management or part of the asset management division of Allianz. So basically what we bring to the table is the private market sites, which they didn't have um, before. And we, we joined them um, in 2018. And really the idea is obviously opening up our business also to the external world because predominantly Allianz, as I said, and they're obviously the distribution power Allianz Global Investors has and also the resources we can tap into and macro analysis and stuff like this, that's helpful. And then we hopefully bring some of the investment um, acumen relationships on the private market side or the private market for me, private equity side. We're part of the asset management offering that Allianz has, basically. And so you, now you also have more masters, as it were. You've got more fund investors. Does that change your role as well? Frankie, we always say if an investment is good for one client, it's hopefully also a good investment for the other. So it hasn't changed that much. We always try to treat everybody fairly and everybody equally this and, and not kind of disregard of what their size is what how long they invested with us so long long-winded answer not not really we try to be the idea is to offer the investment program that we do for allianz on a prorata basis also to external clients so this means that obviously it will be the same investments in the end yeah treating people fairly is a very simple solution to what could otherwise be a complex problem that is that is why we choose the kind of the claim is invest with Allianz. So basically it's a pro rata part in the Allianz program, which means that, yeah, it's only one program, which helps. And what about your decision-making structures, particularly around obviously the investment decisions? How do they work? We'd, we're Obviously we're dealing and we're talking to our, as we call them, sponsors quite frequently. And there's also over the 25 years we do it together, there's obviously also close personal interactions. Um, so what we have agreed to, that is what we call a mandate. So basically think about it like the box we're investing from. So we define the box um, together and say, okay, this is the geographic allocations we want to have. This is the strategies we want to have in there. And then it's basically the investment governance or so the decisions on um, specific investments would then lie with the investment team which I think which makes sense because our colleagues at the sponsor side, are obviously they are good in allocating capital and hopefully we can help them then kind of picking um, the managers we should invest in. And it helps, frankly, on the IC. Obviously, we've got all the people on the IC is representatives of the investment team, so everybody's close to the market. So how often helps. do you rejig the, the box, say the allocations geographically or to strategy? Formally once a year, which normally wouldn't necessarily be kind of big changes um, but obviously we also there's nothing is cast in stone so if we think the market would change then obviously we would also change the strategy uh, are you particularly bullish about any particular well let's say um, geography in the first instance but then strategies what is key to us is really an, an adequate level of diversification because we just think at the end of the day it's a it's a risky asset class and we're dealing with policyholder money, with kind of our investors' money, so we shouldn't lose money to start with. So what this means is that we follow a global strategy, but we have kind of, sounds very easy, but we have defined that we want to do a third in the US, a third in Asia, and a third in Europe. 
And that's broadly what we're following, which hopefully also gives us a good level of diversification. If you think about we're meeting now end of April, so the Ukraine invasion, everything is still there. So hopefully in this context, you think about Europe obviously will be hit hardest most probably. Hopefully our diversification then also can play a good role there. Mm, yeah. And what about um, in terms of private equity strategies? How low down do you do you go into venture capital? Or? We do go into venture capital. Actually, we started out doing venture capital investments in the early years, which means kind of around the millennium change. Yeah, As we all know, probably there would have been better years to start with <laughs> that. So we didn't do it for a while thereafter. And then we started out around 12 years ago in Asia again. And why Asia? Because obviously we're kind of, we're earlier in this market. So hopefully we also got better access to the people we would like to have access to. And there's obviously, it's a it's a huge market. So if you have a startup in, in China, you reach probably, I don't know, 10 million euro, 10 million um, people. If you do the same in a country in Europe, yeah, it's probably 1 million. So this alone helps us in terms of also mitigating the risk a little bit, we see. Yeah. And how are you finding the market, you know, right now as we sit here in, in 2022? How much time do you have? Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's kind of the, no, it's kind of, if you think about it, I mean, I said to somebody yesterday, the only thing that's still missing is an earthquake or something like this. I mean, we had COVID, now we have the war. Um, so obviously a lot of volatility in the market. And I would think that this is here to stay. And frankly, we would expect that also the portfolio will be hit somehow in the course of this year. Think about inflation, pricing, input pricing. Um, that, that's something that doesn't go away. So the hope would obviously be that we pick the right managers to start with who will be able to deal with potential problems in the portfolio. But at the same time, as we all know, in particular, these areas or these periods can be quite good ground for new investments because there's a little bit of disruption in the market. There's probably things becoming available that otherwise wouldn't become available. Um, and that's something we hope if we pick the right managers that we can also benefit somehow on the other end there. But obviously, yeah, it's kind of where we're cautious at the moment, um, but not shell-shocked. So basically, hopefully, again, touching on this diversification point, if we got this right, then hopefully we should also have a good mix in the portfolio. Okay, not to be too doom and gloom, but there's volatility. and But then in addition to that, that you could say, well, maybe the world is facing much tougher economic times. Does that color the way that you um, look at opportunities and assess managers? It, it does color it, but it hasn't necessarily changed in our, let's say, mindset. I mean, obviously it has crystallized quite, quite heavily now with the invasion, everything. Mm -hmm. um, but if you think about, I mean, that's, said it once, in, in a way, we all had a lot of tailwind in the market for whatever, the last decade. And now probably wind comes more from the side, might also be headwind from time to time. So it's, in a way, I don't want to sound cynic, in a way, it's probably a little bit more a normal market where probably you also have to deal with more problems than previously. And now the test is really for the industry, whether we're all up to the task, you know, because obviously the last 10 years were a good run for everybody in a mm. way. What about the... Uh let's say the velocity of capital, because the market looks very busy at the moment. There's lots of deals being done, uh, certainly lots of larger deals. Um, private equity constitutes a, a significant part of the overall M&A landscape. Yes. There's lots of funds being raised, raised, I understand. How does that 
affect thing, things for you? It's interesting. If you look at the stats currently, and we're all the, the people measure dry powder and also measure dry powder. So basically what's available for new investments also compared to how many years this would be. And this number actually has come down. So it's less years, which also has to do with the, the hot market and obviously a lot of uh, money being invested over the, the last years. So in, in a way, in a nutshell, the question is probably, will the funds grow faster than the opportunity set or will they grow more or less in tandem? Frankly, if they grow in tandem, and I'm probably not objective, but I think that over time, private equity, given its good governance model, will also continue to kind of um, get market share from public equity. So you could see a scenario where basically just the market is growing and obviously it also the funds will grow. And um, as we all know, if you think about private equity being, I don't know, <clears throat> um, kind of whatever, 5% of public markets, so there's still some way to go. Will it overtake public markets? Definitely not. I mean, it's still relatively complicated. Yes, we are concerned about if this gets overboard in terms of fund size increases and everything. But at the end of the day, it's always a specific decision comparing, for example, a fund size to how a manager is staffed, what the team looks like, how experienced mm -hmm. it is and things like this. So it's very difficult to say it in general, but it's kind of growing funds don't necessarily mean bad, but could also just mean, okay, yes, the market is growing in, in its entirety or the opportunity set is growing. So I think what a lot of people will be interested in is how you look at those specific opportunities. If there's any um, formula you use or, or even just what's important to you when you, when you look at a, a manager, what do you like to see? Look, it's kind of the, it comes down to when, when, when I started in private equity, a lot of what we did was numerical. So we looked at somebody's mm -hmm. track record and said, okay, the guy or the lady was good back then. They hopefully also will be good going forward. Mm. With the velocity of money and with, for example, then, I mean, previously your fundraising cycle was whatever, four or five years. Now it's probably more two, three years. So by definition, you won't have that many things to look at in the previous fund in terms of real realizations, but rather you, what you have to do is you have to look into the portfolio. So that's a lot of our work. And then the overarching question would be, would we have liked to buy these companies too that the GP has bought in this predecessor fund? And frankly, if the answer is yes, then oh, this gives it gets a long way to say, okay, yeah, probably we should also give the money going forward. Having said this, you said it in the beginning, very small industry 20 years ago, kind of, I mean, not to be disrespectful, but probably deal shops rather than professional services firms. By now, many of them, particular larger funds, is professional services firms. So a lot of what we do in our due diligence is really trying to understand what is the culture, what is the kind of how is decision making being done, how people are motivated, um, but also how who's taking decisions in the end. And that's, I mean, that's that's nothing you can learn just from whatever sitting across somebody for an hour or two. Mm. So that's why we try to actively cover the markets and also get to know GPs three, four years before we probably do the first investment to able to understand what's happening. And frankly, it's also, we're a little bit lazy. So if somebody promises something three, four years ago and it doesn't happen, then hmm. you know, or it happens. And then also it gives you, gives you another data point. So you're not just uh, looking at 
IRRs, you're looking at, you're having to look at more granular EBITDA performance. We probably have to, we have to look deeper into the yet unrealized portfolio. Whereas kind of in the beginning or previously was really just realized returns were set, which is obviously easy to look at because you know what the return was. Um, with the unrealized portfolio, it's probably we have to make up our mind what we think the returns could be. Mm. So that's a little bit more. We're, we're kind of due diligence has become more forward looking, mm. and things like what I said in culture, cult, culture. Um, I mean, one of these elements is, for example, how do people think about succession? Because private equity track records uh, are normally traveling with people rather than institutions. So obviously our view of an institution might also be a different one if there is a, there's a different set of people involved at some point. And obviously the way how you do this, coming back to this professional services point, I mean, that's probably what also the industry went through in terms of um, professionalizing itself. And a lot of good things are happening where just these things become more front and center where they are probably were more kind of reactive in the beginning, to be honest. How, how much do, do things differ in terms of the sophistication of deal shop versus financial services institution? I think one of the elements is size, obviously. In the beginning, whatever your private equity firm, if the big one was whatever, 50 people, now it's probably more like 1,000 people. Um, so this, this changed a lot. And it's depending also on the segment of the market. When it comes to the larger end segment, yeah, it's a lot of, I mean, it's a lot about processes, a lot about sector teams, your operational teams. I mean, and you get deals probably not cheap. You never get cheap deals anyway, but you need to be able to play this process. You need to be proactive with, with managers, which you also have to be on the smaller end, but there probably it's also more important. It's more personal probably in a, in a way. Still mm. personal also on the larger end. I mean, if, you, if you're a manager, you probably also, if, if, if the money is the same, you probably go with the guy that you like better to be honest. Right. So there's still that personal element. even. I think it's still the personal there. element, yes. Mm. Yeah. And like might be a little bit fluffy. Yeah, Could yeah. also be, okay, who's getting more value to me? Who's probably got the better networks? Who's got the better operations team? Things like this. What about the kind of the story they tell? Because, you know, there's, there's, the, there's the facts as they are on the ground and your interpretation of them. But but the world is constantly changing. Whenever somebody's coming to us fundraising, presentations will be rehearsed. They look very shiny and everything's good. So it comes back to the point that we would like to get to know people before they come into actual fundraising mm. and really get to know them over time because then I think you can also kind of get a better glimpse on this cultural element, which I would also subsume that the things you were asking about that's what's the ambition, how do they do this? And at the end of the day, it's a little bit, we have to come up with our idea, what we think the market might look like or the market challenges might be. And then frankly, we have to mirror it and say, okay, how, how well equipped is the manager to deal with this market? And then hopefully if there's a fit, if we like the portfolio, yeah, a lot of, lot of the stars seem to be aligning to invest then in the end. So how many um how many funds would you would you look to invest in, in in Europe and what kind of proportion of the total available would that be do you have those figures to hand the, not i mean not the exact figures no. but we have basically if you think about our global portfolio is we we're shooting for around 120 manager over 4 years 4 years being the assumption for a kind of 
ideal typical fundraising cycle. And then the latest number I have in mind, there seem to be 18,000 managers offering private equity funds. And if you assume that all of these are kind of raising at least once every four years, then yeah, you come you're at below 1% in the end. Hmm. So that's going to keep you busy. And I would imagine that given that you you want to look at unrealized portfolio, the, the whole COVID situation complicates that further because there's industries that have been unfairly punished. There have been industries that have done very well and that may or may not endure. Has that been a headache? It's kind of, it's an interesting question and it's a very topical question because that's obviously, I mean, look, technology had a good run also during COVID because obviously we all were sitting in front of Zoom meetings and everything more often and probably used mm -hmm. um, some of the delivery service. So this helped. But yeah, the, the question is, how will this, is this part of a, longer, bigger trend, or was this more like a, whatever, special two years now? I mean, I, I don't think technology will go away. I think there is a, a trend for technology also to taking just, uh, the, it's just more front and center than it used to be, as we all know, as will be healthcare. But yes, I mean, that's exactly the questions we have to basically also keep ourselves on the toes all the time and just say, okay, is the, the assumption we take for the market, is it still valid or has the market itself changed? And that's probably, I mean, look, the market change is something that is happening much faster, obviously, than, than it used to be. Do you believe that there's um, like a right way of doing things when it comes to private equity, a right way of structuring things? Um, are, there, are there things that that you look for and if you don't see then you know you raise an eyebrow type thing when you when you it, go and see it's frankly it would be nice if we had it it would make our job easier i think they what i also like in the industry that there, there is not the golden way i think so but look things like there is the trend for operations teams but there is not the one model there's people that have operations partners there's people that probably work with external parties but both approaches might work. What I think is key, and that's where we need to be relatively, let's say, holistic when we look at a manager. Basically, we need to make sure we understand whether things fit together. You know, whether somebody tells us they have an operations team, but nobody uses them, just to give an extreme, things like this, or they 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 tell us they do other things, but nobody's really doing it. And this is obviously things you get out if you're in the market for long then, I mean, this is kind of, it's a nice industry. There's also a lot of gossip in the yeah. industry. So that's the nice thing you get. Normally you get out what you, what you want to get out. What, when you see it, do you walk away? You know, it's and it, it's yeah. mostly, it comes down to, I mean, there's, look, we always look at the package. So obviously there is, there is packages where we don't like the terms. There's packages where we might not like the fund size but we might decide to invest still because we think the commercial angle or the commercial attractions are so good. Yeah, we probably kind of, we can live with some of the others. But I think the, the biggest thing is, I mean, look, if people start thinking they can walk on water, and I'm not saying this is ever happening in private equity, but let's assume it would, that would be a problem because you're only, you know, your past track records is fine, but you always, as, as we said, we need to, kind of be on the toes to understand what the market looks like. And that's what we expect from our GPs to say, okay, and we're not lost resting on our laurels, but we kind of want to do the next thing. So it comes down to, 
I mean, it's a very interesting term in private equity speech, humbleness, but mm. something like this, I think is key so that you just don't get kind of ahead of yourself and just think, okay, we just, we kind of basically need to prove it tomorrow too again. So it's the cultural element, which again, makes it a little bit, sounds a little bit esoteric and it's probably a little bit, I compared our job sometimes with that, the job a headhunter does or an organizational consultant does where you just need to make sure basically the GP works with the market environment he's working or he or she's working in. To some degree, when you get to a certain size, does that, does, does that fall away? Because um, you have greater barriers to entry, I suppose, and fewer, and fewer competitors? Yes and no. I mean, obviously you can't just, if, if you're two people, you won't be able to pull off a 10 billion. Okay. We just have, I mean, just Elon Musk announced, so probably <laughs> you could do it, but normally you probably can't do it. Yeah. I mean, yes. So this is barriers to entry and you probably need the credibility with banks and everything. Less competition. Yes. Fine. But it's probably if, if, if you have one competitor who pays crazy prices, it doesn't matter. So the competition thing is probably, it's kind of the, that's the no in the, in my answer. So it's kind of the yeah. competition is always relative. It's always competitive. And there's kind of, if somebody is crazy and buy, buy, uh, pays yeah. crazy prices. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's you only need one, one person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and you mentioned terms. Now, historically, my understanding is that terms have been relatively um, uh, fixed um but to what degree is that not true and how and how how are things changing there is not too much change because if you think i mean everybody knows about the two and 20 um and the two and 20 were there when the fund sizes were probably whatever 100 million and they are also still there when fund sizes are 10 billion having said this the two probably then becomes more like the 1.5 so it's coming down so there's changes at the margin um, but by and large, the model is still the same, which is not a bad model. You know, you have an incentive, you have an alignment and the carried interest with the manager. So that that's okay. But yes, I mean, it's kind of the, we would also, we would also invest in the asset class if the fees would be lower, to tell you a secret. <laughs> and and um, what, what do you like? So, okay, let's take that point. What would you in an ideal world like to see that you still think would be fair? No, in an ideal work, if you want to have kind of the best alignment, you would really have management fees based on a budget approach where it's basically pays for the team, but all the gains and the profits would come from the investments. I mean, I'm not naive not that this will happen. And obviously many of particular the larger players in the market also has have um, a role as an asset manager by now. But that, if you asked me on a clean sheet of paper, that would be ideal. So if I was a new manager, um, I mean, there's, there's value in just doing what everyone expects as well. But is there, you know, if you think, well, maybe let's just get ahead of the game, would it be a wise experiment to push that? It depends. It, it, I don't want to defer the question, but it depends on the package. You know, right. if they, you know, we wouldn't invest because of nice terms. Um, we would rather probably not invest if the terms would be that bad, but it's not that we would invest if we don't like the commercial mm. aspects that we would invest in because of the good terms. So mm. it's always a little bit, I mean, it's 
look, the easiest, the easier part in the two and twenty is in the end, yeah, people have accepted it somehow, as yeah. as the kind of in principle idea. So there's not a lot of discussion around that. As the uh, industry, but, that, but it's sorry. obviously it, rem it remains a question because if you think mm. about if. We're now talking about funds that are 10 billion. If the funds then become whatever, 50 billion at some point, I mean, this number will need to come down further. Yeah. Yeah. You'd think so. Um, yes. <laughs> as the industry gets bigger and more active, people are looking to extend holding periods, sometimes quite dramatically. There are lots of ways of doing that. If you, if you point to continuation funds and something like this, Actually, when this began, it was more like a shotgun wedding where we were always um, a little bit surprised that if we sign up for a fund that uh, has a 10-year life at least, and then we have to take a decision in year seven or eight whether we want to kind of continue with something where we would obviously be ready just to hold on for it for a while. Having said this, these processes have become um, much more professional. So there's more choice and there's more communication with investors. So... Yes, I mean, this will be a, or is, is becoming a bigger part of the market, but it's, it will not be a solution for everything, to be mm -hmm. honest. Because if you think about longer holds are nice, if you're always compounding, then it's obviously a good idea. If you have a well-compounding business, then you hold on to it. Mm -hmm. The problem is if you hold on until year six and then you basically have a little crash and then you compound yourself into your year six levels again in year 10, not so good idea. So it's kind of the, there is a, there is a certain discipline in the current models that if you hold something for, I don't know, around five years, then obviously you also need to drive businesses for five years. There can be an argument is five years probably um, too fast. Should it be six, seven years? We could also live with six, seven years at the end of the mm -hmm. day. Think about we're investing long-term capital so if we can get a higher multiple on this capital if we hold on for a little longer fine for us obviously hmm. and you do um you do other things as well as fund investments so you look at co-investments for example we do co-investments yes um what kind of are you happy with the proportion of those or would you, are you looking to do we more? started co-investing is so we, we started the overall program started 25 years ago and co-investment is basically is the youngest lag which started um in 2008 um, and since then, we've invested continu gradually, continuously um, in the market. So we're happy. We're happy with the deal flow we're having. We're also happy, touch wood, with the portfolio. So, so that's good. But we're, what we don't want to be is kind of try to be the better GP. So we're really in our co-investment program, we follow our GP. So obviously, part of the due diligence is obviously if we decided that we give somebody money for their fund, yeah, then obviously it's also there's a positive inclinement if they would bring a co-investment deal to us. So you mentioned when um, people are on the road fundraising, they're very polished and they probably bring out all the big guns. But once you've invested and you, ha you, you then have this ongoing monitoring task, which sounds quite complex, um, what do you like to um, get from GPs in terms of an information flow? What, is there anything that you feel generally you're lacking? What kind of exposure is helpful there is there is no list i mean obviously we would require as everybody would do quarterly reports and things like this but frankly what's important to us is i mean it says if we sign this document it says limited partnership agreement so there should be a partnership what this means to us is that 
we stick to what we promise. So also in fundraising, we say we're there at a certain point in time, then we're there. And if we get feedback by Friday, then we get feedback by Friday. On the other hand, what I would expect from TP is also just to be open with us on what's happening in the portfolio. So I don't want to read in the newspapers about something that is in a portfolio of one of our managers, which this manager I think should have told us before. And if you think about it, look, it's it's a very simple industry. You put in 100 and then at some point comes 200 out or 50. So you will know at this point in time in any way. So what we want to have is really open communication in both ways. What we are able to give if needed and if helpful is some advice because obviously we have a big portfolio. So we might have seen some of these situations in particular when it comes to organizational questions at other places beforehand. So that's the thing. But to your, they're always giving this long-winded answer. The, no, the short is kind of the open communication and just openness on all sides. And we're also, I mean, we're open. If if we screw something up, then also we expect feedback. So I say, you guys, Michael, you screwed it up. I said, yeah, sorry for that. So, and likewise, if this is an open communication, there's also no surprises. It always helps in the end. How how formal or informal is that information? Does it does it tend to be? Is, could it be as simple as a like almost a personal email, or is it? I guess the larger you get, you get some kind of more typeset. It obviously de- it, it it depends on what the uh, what the issue at hand is. Right. But normally, what we see is obviously over time you also build personal relationships, which are key in an industry where basically our money doesn't look different than other people's money. But hopefully, then over time we also have a little more softer things in this personal relations. And then it could be anything from a phone call to, to something. So we're not hung up about what the form is of a communication, or just that it happens. And frankly, I mean, there's always the, the, the blame on private equity that's so secretive and probably we as an industry also hasn't, haven't done the best job in kind of explaining ourselves. On our end, if we never kind of come across one of our GPs where we think, okay, we really need this information where we don't get it. Sometimes we have to ask, it might not be in the report, but we feel at least if we ask, we normally get what we want. I'm going to ask you about your your own organization's like ambition, like five-year plan or whatever it is. But I okay. mean, in an industry moving and growing so quickly, I, I guess part of it is just keeping up. But do you have um, a specific ambition? It's look, I mean, for us, the, the big change in our business was opening up our program to external clients. Um, which happened now. We're currently touch wood. We're in fundraising, um, and and this is the next step. And that's kind of this is now our first fund again, opening up to external clients. This, as what I said in the beginning, it's kind of invest with Allianz. So it's basically a prorata approach with the internal program, and obviously this should only be the first step, and then there will be a second fund. So this is the growth. If you think this is the ambition, is really. Um, grow the second leg we have to our internal big alliance leg, grow the second leg with um, external clients. And that's where we're obviously thinking about what could be ideas we could do um, complementary to the alliance program, which could be something that probably alliance could help us. So things like this, that's the ambition. There's no no set numbers behind this. And uh, otherwise we're also not shooting for market share, but hopefully we find a few things that make sense for clients, make also sense for um, for the team um, and then come up with it. So, Are there certain types of institution that, that 
that you're targeting or that you think it makes sense for them to to go through your vehicles it's kind of the, the whoever the what our program is is relatively it's diversified it's a global program so anybody who likes that and this could be anything from a pension fund family offices smaller insurance companies um we're kind of we 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 love all our clients so we 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 kind of we obviously but it could be i mean there's it's again difficult to say in general depends on what these clients portfolios have in private equity already for example yeah um our careers have almost intersected because i was at invest europe for a time and you are uh, i think still on the on the management board is that correct no no oh, no no longer after you left i thought there's no sense <laughs> anymore so why why did you get involved with uh, with that industry that wider industry group what, what interests you i think it's kind of the it, there was always you always dealing with kind of the micro level and then once you grew in your career or grow in your career a little bit it always kind of there's obviously you you open up to some of the problems that are more probably faced by the industry mm. um and that's what i thought and it was something i didn't do before so that was the idea to probably get involved a little bit on this side and it was very rewarding frankly it was good team back then i mean still a good team but again i was i was part of it so this was really good experience and you were working on things during solvency 2's review is that correct solvency 2 and then this was the the, the big the, the first ifmm the, the alternative investment fund manager directive so this was the big things back then yes yeah and all pretty successful i'd say from a lobby front i mean i'm slightly biased as well but uh we can't, we can't, we can't say yes now, right? No, obviously not. It was, uh, yeah, no, quite right, quite right. Um, yeah, it's been fascinating talking talking with you, Michael. Do you have is is there any kind of burning thing that you you like to get off your chest? A hobby horse about the industry? That a you, hobby horse about uh, the industry? Not really a hobby horse, but it's really just this cultural element mm-hmm. that we're centering around. So people just need to. I mean, this is. I think it's a great place, and I really like just working in the industry because they're so full of interesting people. And I think the industry, as an industry, we can do a lot of good things in terms of doing good investments and also growing businesses, but it needs to be done in a, um, we don't, we, we can't get ahead of ourselves. So it's always kind of this, this, you know, that it was back then was the masters of the universe and things like this. We should really make sure that this doesn't happen, that this is kind of just a, an industry also, let's see, people on the street can relate to. And they know what's happening. And that's a little bit, I think, where we're all. And, and it's kind of, look, it also comes with the fact that it's just a very big industry by now. And obviously, a lot of the household names are probably now in private equity hands. So that's probably just makes this a little bit more and more important. Yeah, I, I and, think you're so right on the, on the humility point. It is, it's, 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 so, it's so important. Because we otherwise you end up with like a global financial crisis when everyone's just like bonus. No, and it's, it's also the look. The big topic is sustainability. Yeah, we should also be. We're in a good position. Mm. You know, if the most of the, I mean, a lot of the private equity business does majority control deals. Yeah, I mean, it's a good position to be in to also kind of drive sustainability measures, and that's obviously what also we expect from our fund managers. And these are not kind of these are quite sensible goals. We think my my, my experience of of speaking with private equity people like you one on one, and I've always found that the public perception of private equity is completely different to the reality. Whereby I'm, I'm sure there are 
arrogant people. Everywhere. They are, they are, yes. But and there's, there's every, also black sheep. I mean, it's like right. in every yeah, industry. So. Exactly. But it's not the culture of this industry at all. As far as I can tell, everyone I've ever met really has, has been relatively humble. I'd say, despite, looks, like, looks like you met the right people then, Ross. Well, yeah, maybe they've self-selected <laughs> for podcasts. <laughs> um, it's, look, it's an industry where people can make good money, which obviously kind of is a good pull for driven people. But it's probably also a good pull for people who just want to make a quick buck. And that's the little bit, I'm not saying this is happening, but that's where I would coming be from you. Let's make sure that we understand that this is long term and it's kind of not money is not everything. Michael, thank you so much for sparing your time for the fun track. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This episode was sponsored by Linear B Group, a strategic content marketing agency. Linear B has a very strong investment industry practice and supports some of the best known asset managers in their market positioning and brand building activities. I have no hesitation in recommending Linear B for all your marketing needs. And to declare an interest, I'm the founder and managing director. For more information, go to linearb.media. And if you're interested in sponsoring an episode of the Fun Shack podcast, contact us through the website. Until next time.